Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. You're listening to today's episode of Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. Today's program is brought to you by Beyond Breast Cancer, Navigating the New Normal and Reclaiming Your Health and Vitality Post-Treatment. This is my three-month program that I'm going to be starting in July. It's going to be a program that you can access online, and it's going to be a program that's really focused on the mental and physical recovery that we all need to go through post-treatment, and it's going to address many of the health issues that we deal with, uh, how to feel better, how to get your energy and vitality back, and really some self-care exercises and self-care practices that are going to help you deal with the emotional reality. I so hope you'll consider joining me. And if it's something that sounds of interest to you, please reach out to me for more information at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. You can also reach me through my website, which is MindBodyNutritionRN.com. Welcome to today's episode of Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. My name is Deborah Beaumont and I'm your host. I am really excited today that we're able to have a woman that I've had on the podcast before, but she came back to talk with us today about some issues that I think are crucial to every woman who is having to make these ongoing treatment decisions. Ellen Jacobs is joining me today, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about her and then just jump into our conversation. Ellen Jacobs is a breast cancer survivor and holistic cancer strategist who helps people make better, healthier, non-toxic choices. She emphasizes the critical nature of addressing the root cause of cancer and not just the presenting symptoms, which is the tumor we deal with. Ellen specializes in understanding the role of estrogen in breast cancer and debunks the myths associated with it. She is a contributing editor for The Truth About Cancer and was creator and host of the Survive and Live Well radio show on the Cancer Support Network. Ellen is an advisor with the Medical Advisory Board for BreastCancer.org and is on the advisory board of the Radical Remission Project. Ellen was the former executive director of the Emerald Heart Cancer Foundation, and she can be reached through her website, which we're going to talk about later in the show. So, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us again today. Well, thank you again for having me on the show a second time, and thank you for accommodating me at this early hour of the morning. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's a big time difference between me and Ellen. (laughs) (laughs) So, we worked hard at finding a time that worked, and anyway, thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to sharing some information today. Great. I, I want to let our listeners know that the, specifically, the reason I wanted to talk to Ellen is because she and I have had conversations, and I think she is just so eloquent in talking about how we make these decisions. Because as you all know, I am not a fan of an either or approach. I believe that most women in treatment are pursuing some level or intervention of medicine. I think there's a big fallacy that doctors know everything, that we have to do what the doctors are telling us. Yet I think that we do that with very limited information sometimes. And I think the information they're giving us can frighten us. And I really want to help debunk some of those myths. So the first thing I wanted to uh, talk to Ellen about is statistics. We're all quoted statistics when we deal with this and when we're being given treatment decisions. I was joking with Ellen that uh, when I was in college, 
studying statistics, somebody gave me a book called How to Lie with Statistics. And sometimes when I'm looking at all of this in terms of treatment, that's what I feel like is like how to lie or at least skew the information with statistics. How do we make sense of these statistics? When a doctor tells you, you know, take this aromatase inhibitor or tamoxifen, uh, you've got a 50% improvement in outcome or, you know, 50% reduction in recurrence. How does the average person, what do you do with that information and what does that really mean? Okay, so that, Deborah, that is a fantastic um, topic for today. You know, I agree with you 100%. Doctor does not always know best. They can give you one side of the story and a lot of valuable information. Unfortunately, we all have to be our own advocate. Doctor doesn't always give you all the information that you need. So, for example, I had a client two weeks ago that came to me and she said, my doctor told me that I have an 8% chance of having breast cancer come back. But if I take tamoxifen, I only have a 4% chance. So therefore, I'm cutting my risk by 50%. And I said, but that makes no sense because your risk was only 8%. So your intrinsic risk is not 50% lowered. It's 50% of nothing is almost nothing. So there was actually a study done, gosh, many, many years ago that showed it was the breast cancer prevention trial that said high-risk women who used tamoxifen for five years reduced the risk of death from breast cancer recurrence by 49%. So let's just say 50%. Big number, right? No. Unfortunately, here's what it really means. The odds of getting breast cancer for this in this study, according to it, is without tamoxifen were 1.3%. And with tamoxifen, it was dropped to 0.68%. But the difference was actually 49%. In reality, we're talking about 86 women out of over 13,000, or just over one half of 1% would see an improvement. So we have to really look at what the percentages mean. Like you said, we can lie with percentages. The scientists are taught how to do that because they have to prove a result. So you have to remember that. So for that one half of 1%, you get a, you're taking a chemotherapy drug, tamoxifen is chemotherapy. It's a known carcinogen. Your risk of liver cancer, endometrial cancer, blood clots, increases inflammation, as we know by a CRP test, ocular damage, which means the eyes, weight gain, severe muscle muscle pain, mental confusion, mental loss, depression. I could go on and on, but I think you get the idea that for less than 1%, difference. I'm not sure that many of us would actually accept the drug if we knew the truth. So sometimes, as Deborah said, we um, are kind of, the, the statistics are not quite what we really want them to be. Meanwhile, there's a lot of natural things that do the same, very same things as tamoxifen. Let's just say, for example, that we took flaxseed and we ate flaxseed every single day and right. we had a significant amount of it. That would decrease our cell proliferation rates. It would significantly reduce our tumor growth, just like tamoxifen is aiming to. It would decrease angiogenesis, which is the process which by which a tumor would create its own blood supply. It would increase apoptosis, which is cancer cell death, which will decrease our tumor growth. It'll re- reduce mystases of ER negative breast tumors as well as positive. It would reduce the growth of breast cancer, including triple negative breast cancer. It's also with the omega-3s would positively influence tumor suppressor genes, i.e. shuts off the ability 
it shuts off those tumor promoting genes. It also, for the just for the heck of it, will help protect you if you're the type of person that does mammograms or CTs or PET scans. It will help protect your body from the damaging radiation. So while tamoxifen can do some of these same things, it isn't giving you any protection and it's giving you a significant risk of serious side effects. Well, I think that's really interesting because as frequently talk about, you just basically listed the um, metabolic characteristics of cancer cells, you know, the many moving parts. It's not just one thing, which is really where oncology comes into it. They're looking at addressing uh, a known tumor and preventing it from growing. So it's, it's really addressing one stage. And everything you just mentioned is all the stages that lead up to us even having a tumor to begin with. I think it's really interesting. I know you're a big uh, proponent of flaxseed. <clears throat> if doctors, and that's a big if, buy into the fact that nutrition makes any difference in these areas, uh, the next thing they're going to say is flaxseed and um, soy and all of these things are phytoestrogens and they're increasing your estrogens and they're bad for you. And I, I think one of the things that happens, and I've been talking about a great deal, is that estrogen isn't one thing. It's, it actually refers to a lot of things. There are phytoestrogens, there are environmental estrogens, there are three forms of our own natural estrogen. There are estrogen metabolites. So when doctors talk about estrogen, they talk about it like it's one single thing, and it's really not. It's, it's, a, it's an umbrella phrase for many forms of estrogen in our body, and phytoestrogens through flaxseed, like you're talking about, are actually beneficial. You don't have to sit there and say, oh my God, there's estrogen in the word, so it's bad for me. That's right, Deborah, because if you were going to avoid phytoestrogens, that means you basically have to take all almost all plant foods out of your diet, right. um, and, and including even things like oat. So no more oatmeal, no more vegetables. I mean, everything, no more beans. Um, all of these things have phytoestrogens in them. So it is no more sesame seeds. So they just don't understand, like you said, that estrogens are not all the same. And phytoestrogens actually sit on the receptors. They're very, very weak estrogens. So they block the, the opportunity for the more aggressive estrogens, including the xenoestrogens, which are the worst, from sitting on those receptors. And we also know from a very major landmark study done by Dr. Lillian Thompson. This was uh, quite a while ago, and she found she was, um, she did a study with the University of Toronto, and she found that just two tablespoons of this flaxseed, which is 25 grams, can significantly reduce tumor growth. And on top of that, it also reduced by 34% your KI index, which is your cell replication index, and by 71% decrease in your HER2 expression. So those wow. who are taking um, HER2 drugs, right, instead you actually get a better um, response out of tamoxifen, and that's pretty cool, and almost a 31% increase in cancer cell death. Um, so we know that there are significant studies out there. I mean, that's not the only one. It was just the landmark kick off the buck. Let's say, you know, finally bring this out in the open. But there has been so many studies on flaxseed. So it's a little dicier because it can be not well received by some constitutions versus others. And also if it's not organic, it's a problem. So, and, uh, and also the problem with soy is it's packaged in plastic 
Right. And, and it's very fatty, so it's absorbing the plastic. But flaxseed, you can't poke any holes with. Same thing with sesame seeds. There is no reason to avoid sesame seeds. And even people worry about things like licorice root. Licorice root is amazing what it can do for you. But yet everyone says, oh, my doctor told me that it was an estrogen. There's no way I can take that. And that is just nonsense. Now, that doesn't mean that licorice root in high doses is good for everyone because it can raise your blood pressure and it can do some things. But in general, a small, you know, a cup of licorice root tea is going to do the body good. It's not going to do the body harm. Right. Oncologists and the advice that we're given, you know, we need that. But they, there are limitations. Doctors are doctors. They're trained a certain way. I can tell you, I worked in traditional medicine for most of my career. And I can tell you what what medical people, doctors and nurses are trained in, in actual nutrition is little to none. And so when you're going to a doctor, they have their area of expertise. Nutrition is just not one of them, unless they've done specialized training and it's it's been a personal interest. It's not a part of standard medical training. So when we right. turn to a doctor to answer all these questions, they just may not be the best resource. That's why there's people like you and me and trying to educate people. And there's a lot of misunderstanding. Right. You know, it's funny because women, you know, I mean, I, I actually have talked to women who are absolutely terrified with, with good reason. You know, they're dealing with cancer and they've just been indoctrinated to believe that estrogen is the problem. Well, estrogen doesn't give you cancer. Estrogen in the presence of a cancer tumor can be a growth factor, but it once again comes down to looking at what's healthy and some of these more damaging carcinogenic unhealthy estrogens that we're dealing with, either internally or coming in from the outside. That's right. And you have to remember, too, that there's different kinds of estrogen, and there's also a different kind of dance between estrogen and progesterone. And and also, by the way, to, to speak to your point, a good doctor will admit that they were never taught anything about nutrition in medical school. I mean, they will actually, mine admitted it and told me to go find somebody else, you know, who, who was more astute in that area. But so they will admit that if they're worth anything. But in general, you have to think about the fact that they're all worried about this high estrogen, which most people, 99% or whatever, I'm not going to quote a statistic on that, but most women as they grow older, their estrogen plummets. It's a fact of life. So further reducing it with aromatase inhibitors makes absolutely no sense. I mean, everyone's mother, I mean, I'm 57, so my mother and everybody else's mother in my generation suddenly felt terrible as their estrogen was plummeting and they went on HRT, which is a bad move because it's synthetic. If we don't have high estrogen as we are aging, what we really need to do is raise progesterone. So since your doctor doesn't understand that, he wouldn't or she wouldn't be able to say, well, you know, you need to take vitamin E, magnesium, zinc, B6, eat cruciferous vegetables, take vitamin C. All of those things will help boost your progesterone. And then they'll say, you know, take DIM, which will help you to metabolize the estrogens. And K2, which is a natural aromatase inhibitor for those who actually have high estrogen. Licorice root, which we just spoke about, will help you to boost progesterone and reduce estrogen. So then, of course, I think we might have talked about this last show, but people say, but my doctor said I'm PR positive. But that's good because then you have receptors for progesterone. And that's a whole complicated scientific story. But the idea is that that actually improves prognosis when you're PR positive as well as ER positive, except in a small group of people who are BRCA. And that is sort of still not quite clear 
with right. the progesterone role. But for everybody else, it, it appears that being progesterone positive is a very good thing. But most of us, as we age, while the estrogen plummets, the progesterone plummets even more. So we need to work hard at getting that progesterone higher in our bodies so we can offset the estrogen. But as you said, it still doesn't compensate for everything. You still want to block the receptors in some ways from some of the, you want to not necessarily block them, but you want to get rid of the xenoestrogens and you do want to occupy some receptors, especially if you're very young. And so you don't get that cell replication. But again, that brings us to the phytoestrogens. Right. Which once again, you know, phytoestrogens are healthy. Um, just, just because it's got estrogen in the word does not mean you know, it has to be demonized. I just finished an interview with Carrie Jones, who is a doctor for the Dutch testing profile that really does advanced testing of all of these hormones, which is actually not done in traditional medicine. Traditional medicine will draw an estrogen level, but that, that's not telling you the whole interplay of all of these hormones and the balance of these hormones that we need in order to be in a, in a healthy place and not in a place where the estrogen is becoming more carcinogenic in our body. So that's another uh, episode that people can listen to. Right. That's great. I mean, I look forward to seeing that. Um, and the other thing to realize that if, peop- if tamoxifen and other types, and if aromatase inhibitors work so well, why would everybody go from stage one to stage four, you know, and why would it, why would they get a recurrence if these drugs work so well? And part of the reason that it isn't is that, that these drugs aren't working is that there's a resistance, there's a resistance to tamoxifen and there's a resistance to aromatase inhibitors. Because while aromatase inhibitors work at cutting off this estrogen, the cancer adapts by making its own survival mechanism. So there's a particular gene called CYP, which is CYP, 19A1. And when copies of this gene are produced, it triggers an increased production of aromatase, the very enzyme the drugs are trying to block. And this allows cancer cells to make their own estrogen and thus reproduce and spread. So it bypasses the whole idea of taking the aromatase inhibitor. Wow, that is such a powerful thing to think about. What you're really referring to is cancer is a really, well, in some ways, it's kind of a dumb bucket kind of thing, but in some ways, it's a very smart adapting kind of disease process. So in the presence of tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors, these cancer cells can again mutate and change so that they then become resistant to the very thing that you're giving it and develop their own ability to produce their own growth factors is basically what you just said. That's right. And and according to one of the studies, I don't have the the name of the study in front of me, but there was a 21.5% risk factor there where in in over 21% of the time, aromatase inhibitors fail because that enzyme is involved and the cancer has a way of making it, you know, just bypassing the system. So the only way to avoid that is then start to do a biopsy and find out what is actually happening and and check all this gene expression. But nobody's going to do that until you find out that you're stage four and say, well, I've been on this aromatase inhibitor. Why am I now stage four? Oh, well, because now things have changed. It didn't work for you. Well, I really want to talk about that because I, I you know, I, I think my greatest goal for doing this podcast is, is really to help people, women and people, it's not just women who get breast cancer, but majority women, to really understand. I mean, I, I think some people, they start hearing the medical jargon and statistics and they really check out. But these are just 
basic questions to have in your arsenal to ask your doctor. So the fact is, my desire to do this episode came when I heard a woman say that, uh, you know, right now the standard of care, which is something I also want to talk about in today's episode, but right now the standard of care is to give these um, estrogen blocking meds, for lack of a better phrase, 10 years. And this woman said, oh no, my doctor told me I'm going to be in up for the rest of my life. Well, it's interesting because I had an appointment with my own oncologist that day and I was talking to him about it. And he's like, you know, when we started with tamoxifen, we thought it was a miracle drug. And then we found out there were all these other problems. And now we have these aromatase inhibitors. And he said, we don't know what that's going to do in the long term. So there is no clinical indication to give somebody these drugs for 25, 30 years. We don't know what it's going to do in the long term. We're barely just figuring out what it's doing at that 10-year mark, which is the new reference point in the case of breast cancer. And this came from a traditional oncologist. So I was, I was really impressed that he was able to talk about it that way. It's like the medical world doesn't know what these are doing in long term. And I think that it's just what this doctor may have been utilizing was that belief that if a little is good a lot more is better. And that's not necessarily the case when you're taking these estrogen blocking meds. That's absolutely right. Because you have to remember when you artificially lower estrogen, and even when it's just done by nature, you're decreasing your overall survival because you're increasing your risk of heart attacks and lung problems and you know brain, all kinds of things that these, these drugs affect. I mean, estrogen is involved in 140 or more different processes, and some of them are critical, again, like lung and heart function. So it doesn't matter to them. Well, maybe it does, but it doesn't appear to matter to them if you die of a heart attack in, in 10 years, but long as you didn't die of breast cancer, they can say that they did well by you. But this is crazy. The longer that you were on these drugs, the more damage that they do. And some of it is almost immediate. I mean, I deal with clients all day that have serious damage from these drugs and they they come to me and say, I want out. I don't want to do this anymore. I, I, I already have had eye surgeries because I've had damage. These things cause ocular damage. I mean, that means you're permanently damaging your eyes by taking these drugs. So doctors don't explain that. They don't even go there. They just say it's minimal and you'll be okay. So it's not okay. Even in 2007, when my doctor was pushing the tamoxifen, I told her it's a bad drug. She said, Ellen, it is absolutely a bad drug, but it's all we've got. Unfortunately, I think many women only find out about these problems when they start experiencing them. And it makes me so angry to hear women going back to their doctors and their complaints are minimized, dismissed, or they're told, just get over it. I was talking to somebody the other day and she said, oh, my doctor mentioned quality of life. Well, let me tell you, when a doctor mentions quality of life, that's a euphemism for you've got weeks, if not months left. You know, I'm talking quality of life every single day. And these drugs affect quality of life. And I don't mean in the term sense. I mean, in the fact that these drugs are leaving women disabled, outright disabled. This woman was walking with a walker and she's like, yeah, but it's going to fix my cancer. It's like, not necessarily. Not necessarily. And that's the big myth uh, with the drugs is they have these really extreme side effects for many women, but then trying to get any resolution through the traditional medical system comes back to something that they operate by, which I'd like to have you talk about a little bit, called the standard of care. You know, they are obligated in order to keep their license, they are obligated to offer you the standard of care, which is usually pharmaceutically based as well as surgery and, and radiation. They can, like your doctor, 
they can actually believe that it's probably not the best for you, but they are still obligated to offer it. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the standard of care, because I know you've talked to a lot of doctors in the course of your radio show and your work. Right. They absolutely do have to follow the standard of care. That's a really big problem because even if they know in their heart, they've gone to conferences, they've done the research, they know these drugs aren't good for you. I mean, that's why there's that whole, there was that study, I don't remember the name of it, but there was a study that said how many oncologists would refuse chemo if it was for them or their family members, their loved ones, their wife, their children. So they know these things don't work, but it, they, they have to follow the standard of care. So what I tell my clients is the best thing to say when they tell you, this is, you know, I'm going to recommend the aromatase inhibitor for you. And if you don't feel comfortable and you feel that it is just the standard of care and it's not good for you, then your the perfect response is, doctor, thank you. I appreciate that you're offering me your suggestion and that's your job to do. But you have to appreciate that my job is to accept or decline your suggestion. And then they can say, hit the door or they can say, well, what are you going to do? Sort of like my doctor's said to me, what are you going to do? And I laid out my plan and they were like, perfect, wonderful. I love your plan. So some of them will be very honest with you. And that's the good doctor. If you're good, if the bad doctor says, basically, you're going to die if you don't do this or well, that you're stupid if you think that that's going to work. Right. Then you have to say to them, listen, show me where the standard of care is going to benefit me, both in quantity and quality of life. Because it really doesn't matter if you're walking on that with that walker for the next 20 years and you have no life whatsoever because you're on this drug and then you die of the breast cancer anyway. I mean, does it... Or a heart attack. Or a heart attack or you collapse because you can't breathe. So how is that an improvement? It would be better. I'm not saying do nothing and stick your head in the sand. What I'm saying is if you can find, which there are many, natural alternatives that don't create any harm but appear to work just as well. Now, remember, we haven't proven that tamoxifen works. We haven't proven that aromatase inhibitors have worked. In fact, we've proven that they don't work because people are still getting recurrences in droves. So if 30% of people are still recurring, that means the drugs are not working or the drugs are just handling symptoms and are not getting to the reason for the cancer. And that is a really big issue. Drugs treat symptoms. They're not curative. Nobody was ever born tamoxifen deficient. Nobody was ever born aromatase inhibitor deficient. So those are not going to fix the reason for your problem. If you're estrogen dominant, perhaps you are overstressed. You just have too much stress in your world and therefore your progesterone has plummeted. And maybe your liver is not functioning well, so it's not metabolizing your estrogen. And sort of like never changing the oil in your car makes no sense, right? So if your liver can't change the oil, i.e. flush out the estrogen and just keeps reusing and recirculating the estrogen, that's not a good thing. And a a more holistic approach would say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take certain foods and supplements that raise progesterone. We're going to take other things if needed, and they may not be needed, if needed to lower your 
estrogen. And certainly we want to take out all of the chemical estrogens from your world as much as we can, because it's almost impossible to completely get rid of xenoestrogens, unless you never use toilet paper or, or, or paper towels or ever touch cash register receipts. But anyway. But, but dryer sheets are not necessary. Maybe the biggest. Oh, they're definitely not necessary. Dryer sheets. You know, it's to, there's natural yes. alternatives, but please, anybody stop using yes. dryer sheets. That's just, just a horrible <laughs> even thing. And any kind of those chemical cleaners and all of those things are terrible. But there's lots of natural things. Again, the licorice root, vitamin D, K2, selenium, magnesium, um, zeolites. All of these things help to change this balance between the estrogen and progesterone and protect you. So there's, a, you know, without going extensively, you can see lists and lists that I've posted on my website, but there are so many natural things that can change that environment to one of health instead of one of sickness and without drugs that are going to decrease both your quantity and quality of life. And I think that is so important. Exactly. And, I, and uh, we're going to summarize it at the end, but Ellen has wonderful resources and uh, has done tons and tons of writing, which you can access on her website, which is ellenjacobs.com. Ellen with a Y, E-L-Y-N. I wanted to make sure that I, I really highlighted a couple of things that said, going back uh, a to this standard of care. One of the things that I think is very prominent is women will say, well, I didn't hear that from my doctor or my doctor said this. And of course, if the doctor says it, it means they have to do it. So let's go back to what you were saying and talk about that in a very practical sense. So basically, doctors are mandated to give you standard of care. And standard of care means that this is the protocol that applies to everyone. It is the blanket standard that applies to everyone that has the characteristics of your cancer. So it's not individualized and personalized to your needs. It's the standard of care. They're obligated to offer it. So if you're waiting for them to say, but, you know, there's this other information, that's not going to happen in most cases. It's just, it's just not. That's, not. that's not how they operate. So instead of the doctor knows best mentality, which I often refer to as the me, Tarzan, you, Jane um, kind mm -hmm. of thinking, it is your responsibility then to ask more in-depth questions. Why do you feel this is best? What is the outcome that you're anticipating? What are the side effects? It is incumbent upon us to ask those questions. We can't just say, well, the doctor told me to do it because that, that's just not going to be in your best interest. So, so that it's important to understand standard of care is, the, is what's offered to everybody and they're, they're basically legally required to offer it. It's up to you to say yes or no. Right. Deborah, do you remember when you were a kid and you wanted to do something because your best friend was doing it right. and your mother said, I, you know, I really don't care. That's not the way we do it. So somehow we went from being teenagers who challenged everything to being compliant adults who, when the doctor says you have to do this because it's the standard of care, because I told you this is how you have to do it. You don't challenge that anymore because the guy went to, or the lady went to medical school. So you figure that that doctor knows best, but they are really just following what we are, you just said, the standard of care. It doesn't mean that that's what works. It means that's the only thing that they are allowed to, to give you, or they can risk losing that medical license. They can get in a lot of trouble. And if you had a recurrence and your spouse or your family member sued him, they would say, well, you're liable now, this malpractice, you did not 
tell her to do the standard of care, you allowed her to go out on her own and do something. So they're really quite forceful that they want you to do that standard of care to CYA. Um, cover their butts, so they even if it doesn't work, and they certainly aren't educated. Most of them aren't, or aren't willing to say. But if you don't want to do the standard of care, you're certainly welcome to go out there and eat flaxseed. They're not going to tell you that. They can't. It's not in their toolbox. So it's you, as Deborah said, you really have to take it upon yourself to say, "Thank you, doctor," but. I have questions for you. Oh, I was just going to say, and the and the thing that that for me is a deal breaker in any relationship. If that doctor gets angry at you, or says, "quote unquote," they're going to fire you, uh, which I have heard. It's like mm-hmm. more power to them. There are other resources. Any doctor who's not willing to have the conversation with you, th- these are complicated, life changing decisions. Whether you you follow standard of care or not, maybe that's going to give you the most peace of mind, and that's what you want to do. But to not be able to ask questions, to have a doctor, to ever feel like your doctor is too busy or too preoccupied to help you sort through these decisions, that's not, that's, that's not good medicine. It's just not. And you have a right to ask these questions and know this information before you make these very powerful decisions. That's right. And I want to add something to that because a lot of people don't have another opportunity for an oncologist. You know, in some areas of the United States and elsewhere in the world, it could be 200 miles before there's another oncologist. And I hear I'm that. A, a, you're one of them, right? <laughs> we there's have one a, oncologist. <laughs> right. There's a lot of instances where if you, that guy knows he's the only one, you know he's the only one or she's the only one. And if you fire that oncologist, you're kind of out of luck. So what I, I would just want to, I want to talk about that only because it's is a problem for a lot of people. Right. So you have a choice. If the oncologist is not actually proactively trying to save your life, but rather just giving you that standard of care, and you honestly feel in your heart and your gut that this is not the right protocol for you, there are oncologists who will work with you over the phone. You can, you know, there's a lot of people who will work with you that aren't are we would call distant, you know, like virtual oncologists. They will still help you. And you just need to have make sure that you have other doctors who, and that can you know monitor your progress and and order some labs or even you know because sometimes across the state line you can't order labs for patients so you could have your OBGYN do it you could have your internist order labs so there's always a way so don't feel bullied just because you know that that is the only oncologist for 200 miles and you don't have an aunt sue in Topeka that you can drive to and stay with while you go visit this person and a different person so know that there really is a way and I'd like to really mention that that's where people like you and I can can really be very helpful in terms of facilitation. We both work by phone, and and with my being an advanced practice nurse, I can order labs. It is not uncommon that I will write a letter, uh, someone's general doctor, and say these are the labs that that I'm recommending, and these are the reasons. And and generally, you know, their biggest concern is usually, well, tell me what codes to use so it's covered by insurance. And so you know, I just I give codes, and and I have not gotten a lot of pushbacks from from doctors around that. Sometimes with oncologists, but I'm not out to challenge them. I'm really out to help women facilitate their care, and and I think that you are as well. 
well. And I know that that um, in your capacity, you don't order labs, but you could certainly guide somebody in terms of what to ask their doctors for. Or And we're not even talking about labs. We're just talking about these other things, just having other information. And I think that uh, even if someone is not, they you know, you're on a small island in the middle of the Pacific, that there are definitely resources and information and ways to access services to support you and become more informed in what your choices are. Right. Now, I think that's fantastic that you can order the labs because that is one of the big um, obstacles for many clients is that they have trouble and we have to make, go through kind of hoops and ladders, but we get them done, but you can order them. That's great. And I, I think that's important, you know, just to know that every single person does have options. I mean, right. options are very important and it takes us a lot of the stress out of the whole situation when you know that you don't have to be bullied by this doctor. When I first moved to Hawaii here, there wasn't an oncologist. I came from San Francisco and I found an integrative oncologist and I had consults with him over the phone and he gave me an outline and then I took that to my doctor, ordered the lab. So he was sort of managing it from a distance. But I can tell you, even if I had required treatment, I would have taken that same managing treatment plan that he recommended to my doctor and really been very insistent that that uh, that the 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 big picture for the treatment plan I wanted it to come from an integrative oncologist and not a traditional oncologist and that's the power that we have you know we may be frightened and we may be overwhelmed and we may even be kind of bullied by the whole oncology complex system, but we have power and we have choices. This is not an area where it's going to serve you well to stick your head in the sand and say, well, the doctor told me to do it. You really have to do a lot of work to become informed. And I think that that's that's just a step that that most people don't necessarily think about when they first get a diagnosis because they're so frightened. That's right, because the fear factor comes in, and when you're when you have fear, when you're operating out of fear, you can't even make a good decision. You're just going to say yes, doctor, and whatever the doctor tells you to do. And sometimes I get a little sar- sarcastic, and I say, "Well, tell the doctor you take the drug for five years. Let me know how it works for you. See if you get any side effects, and maybe I'll take it after that." You know, if they're not like making them take their own poison, you know, you want to end me poison, you take it first. But most of us don't feel that brave when we're con- we're confronted with this diagnosis. So that's where, again, yes, a coach, Deborah, me, whatever, there's lots of us out there, can really help you to get your confidence back so that you can make the best decisions. So you know that you're not going to drop the bucket tomorrow. You know, you've got time to make the best decision for you, the best decision that's going to give you quantity of life, quality of life, and get rid of the cancer. Because again, they, you have to remember, and this is so very important, doctors target symptoms. They want to kill the cancer. They want to remove the cancer. But they don't give a hoot about why you got the cancer. They just tell you things like it just happens, bad luck, all kinds. That is so far from the truth. It's sickening that they, they still will not acknowledge that in this day and age, we know what causes cancer. We don't always know exactly what caused one person's cancer, but we know so much. We have so many things to target beyond just stepping on the ants. We need, we need to, to really address the reason for it because you can give all the tamoxifen, the aromatase inhibitors, all the chemo in the world that you want, but if we're not getting up at the reason for the cancer, it's not helping. And also, if we're not testing people to make sure that chemo would even work for them. Some people, chemo is too toxic, including tamoxifen. Okay, tamoxifen, again, is a chemotherapy. So 
if we're not testing people to see if these things can work before we're subjecting them to these harsh drugs, this is horrific to me. This is malpractice. Right. And and that testing is available and that, that can become an issue of, of surprise to many people. We, you know, as I've talked about in other episodes, we've learned so much in the last 20 years about the factors that influence whether a cell naturally dies or becomes cancerous. Unfortunately, that's just not really incorporated into a lot of modern the medical complex way of, of looking at this, but we have learned a great deal. And and there's so much evidence that to say that you're unaware of it is pretty interesting to me. Yeah, I was looking for a nicer word. You know, <laughs> but but uh, I'm good. <laughs> well, ignorance is not a bad word. Ignorance is, and if you look it up in the dictionary, it just means you are uninformed. Right. So, right. right. So they're uninformed. They're not going to conferences. They're not reading the... the I mean, I spend, you know, 50 hours a week reading, you know, they could do that too in their spare time as if we hadn't, any of us have spare time, but you can do it. Right. If you want right. to. Or, you know, as I'm, I'm a big proponent of, and I know you are too, having an integrated team. It's like, right. this isn't, they're not emperors, you know, they, they do one piece of it, but, you know, being willing to work with you or I or another practitioner or, or work with people collaboratively instead of saying that it's a black or white decision, which really comes back to my whole mantra. It's not black or white. It's complicated, you know, sort of like breaking up. It's complicated. Right. So I want to be very respectful of your time because I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. And um, I know we're uh, reaching the last few minutes and I have about 10 more questions. So I guess I'll have to have you back a third time. <laughs> maybe I'll just do a regular Ask Ellen episode. <laughs> I really, I really do want to just uh, let our listeners know that I, that you have been doing this for many years and n- not only incorporate your professional um, knowledge, but your personal experience. And I just think it's, it's incredibly valuable and a resource for all of us. So please tell us how people can find some of your wonderful writing and some of the resources that you've developed over all this time and made available to people. Absolutely. And first, I want to say thank you. And then you offer an, an amazing service as well. I mean, I think that the more of us out there that are assisting people, the better. And I appreciate so much that you're doing this show to share that with everybody. Thank you so much. And so my website is w, is ellenjacobs.com. And if you go to the bottom, it shows you the top articles. There's always links to, you know, alternatives to tamoxifen, alternatives to aromatase inhibitors, and alternatives to anti-hormone therapy. Um, but really all my articles are to, to go to the fast track. You could just Google my name and a topic and you'll usually find something that you're interested in looking for. But my website has tons of resources. They're all free. My old radio shows are up there. I'm on YouTube. And I do a lot of these kinds of appearances on shows. So you can find my my guidance there or you can sign up to have a, a private consult. It's whatever really works for you individually. Um, Great, great. And that's Ellen with a Y. I, I like to tell people because at first I, I couldn't figure out why I, I know you're very out there on, on the internet, and but I was using the traditional spelling of Ellen. So it's E-L-Y-N, ellenjacobs.com. Once again, just thank you so much. And I'm sure I will have you back because I just love talking to you. <laughs> well, I enjoy it too. And I grew up as Ellen with a Y. So I'm very used to people saying that. Ellen with a Y, Ellen with a Y. Yes, you know. And, and my original maiden name, my maiden name was Schmidt, which two T's, no D. So oh, it was Ellen oh. with a Y because everyone spelled the D T. So Ellen with a Y, 
Schmidt, two T's, no D. <laughs> Boy, I thought mine was tough. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to coming again next oh, time. Thank you, Ellen. This has been great. All right. Take care. You too. Wow. I just love when Ellen joins us. Uh, she's just a, such a wonderful advocate and voice, and it has such information that we all need, and I so appreciate her joining us today. Please check out her website and a lot of the free resources that she has. I would like to mention that you can also go to my website, which is www.mindbodynutritionrn.com, and on there I have a free download, a free e-guide talking about these uh, estrogen-blocking drugs and what the normal and expected side effects can be, just as a place to start your education. It's a free guide, so please check that out. You can also uh, check out um, show notes that I'm going to attach from today's show. I upload all of the episodes on there so you can find the podcast recording and show notes. But I'm going to be opening up a group, an ongoing group for women who are going through breast cancer recovery. It's going to be an integrative group based in functional medicine, but it's also going to incorporate mind-body healing. So my intention for the group is really to make it very comprehensive and really talk about a lot of these healing methods that we need. Ellen mentioned, and you'll hear in my other podcasts, it's not just a matter of medications or supplements. It's a matter of stress management and psychological and emotional healing and dealing with um, the outcome of being given this diagnosis, which is complicated. So I'm opening up this group. If you would like to be notified of that as a, a VIP notification, when I'm actually enrolling people, please send me an email at RadicalHealthRN.com. I'd appreciate it if you could go to iTunes and subscribe and leave positive reviews for the show. I so appreciate you joining us today. So until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com or her website, www.MindBodyNutritionRN.com. You can also find us on Facebook under Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. For future episodes, subscribe on iTunes, where you can also leave positive reviews. Until next time.